Our sermon today is taken from Exodus chapter 6, verses 10 through chapter 7, verses 7. This is the word of the Lord. So the Lord said to Moses, Go, tell Pharaoh, king of Egypt, to let the people of Israel go out of his land. But Moses said to the Lord, Behold, the people of Israel have not listened to me. How then shall Pharaoh listen to me? For I am of uncircumcised lips. But the Lord spoke to Moses and Aaron and gave them a charge about the people of Israel and about Pharaoh, the king of Egypt, to bring the people of Israel out of the land of Egypt. These are the heads of their father's houses, the sons of Reuben, the firstborn of Israel, Hanok, Palu, Hezron, and Carmi. These are the clans of Reuben. The sons of Simeon, Jemuel, Jamin, Ohad, Jachin, Zohar, and Shaul, the son of a Canaanite woman. These are the clans of Simeon. These are the names of the sons of Levi according to their generations. Gershon, Kohath, and Merai. The years of the life of Levi being a 137 years. The sons of Gershon, Libni, and Shimei by their clans. The sons of Kohath, Amram, Izhar, Hebron, and Uziel. The years of the life of Kohath being 133 years. The sons of Merai, Mali, and Mushi. These are the clans of the Levites according to their generations. Amram took as his wife Joshebed, his father's sister, and she bore him Aaron and Moses. The years of the life of Amram being 137 years. The sons of Izhar, Korah, Nepheg, and Zikri. The sons of Uziel, Mishael, Elzaphon, and Sithri. Aaron took as his wife Elisheba, the daughter of Amminadab, and the sister of Nashon. And she bore him Nadab, Abihu, Eleazar, and Ithamar. The sons of Korah, Asher, Elkanah, and Abiasaph. These are the clans of the Korathites. Eleazar, Aaron's son, took as his wife one of the daughters of Putiel, and she bore him Phineas. These are the heads of the fathers' houses of the Levites by their clans. These are the Aaron and Moses, to whom the Lord said, Bring out the people of Israel from the land of Egypt by their host. It was they who spoke to Pharaoh, king of Egypt, about bringing out the people of Israel from Egypt, this Moses and this Aaron. On the day when the Lord spoke to Moses in the land of Egypt, the Lord said to Moses, I am the Lord. Tell Pharaoh, king of Egypt, all that I say to you. But Moses said to the Lord, Behold, I am of uncircumcised lips. How will Pharaoh listen to me? And the Lord said to Moses, See, 
I have made you like God to Pharaoh, and your brother Aaron shall be your prophet. You shall speak all that I command you, and your brother Aaron shall tell Pharaoh to let the people of Israel go out of his land. But I will hearten Pharaoh's heart, and though I multiply my signs and wonders in the land of Egypt, Pharaoh will not listen to you. Then I will lay my hand on Egypt and bring my host, my people, the children of Israel, out of the land of Egypt by great acts of judgment. The Egyptians shall know that I am the Lord when I stretch out my hand against Egypt and bring out the people of Israel from among them. Moses and Aaron did so. They did just as the Lord commanded them. Now Moses was 80 years old and Aaron 83 years old when they spoke to Pharaoh. Thus says the Lord. Amen. Thanks, Joe. If you guys are ever looking for baby names, let's <laughs> go to Exodus 6. You'll find it there. Uh, let me pray for us before uh, we preach God's word. Father, it's clear from this text that the glory and the right and the credit of our salvation comes from you. Our hearts are hard, and I beg you that in your mercy you would make them soft, and that as your word of deliverance and redemption comes to the ears of those who are here, that it would not fall on dead ears, but rather on hearts and ears and eyes that truly hear and see. I beg you, Father, no eloquence, no excellence in preaching, nor ability of music or liturgy leading, nothing material that we do can ever cause us to live. I pray and I beg you for more of your mercy in this room today, that those who hear your word may come to you. We are helpless without it. In your son's name we pray. Amen. So friends, we're continuing our series today through the life of Moses, and we're going through Exodus chapter 6 and Exodus chapter 7. And what's happening at this point of the story is, well, let's go to the beginning. Israel and Moses, they're going through a pretty hard time in life, right? Israel's been enslaved by Egypt for 400 years. Moses, uh, God's chosen redeemer, doesn't want to do his job. He refused to obey God and go to Pharaoh. Remember that? And then he finally did it. But in chapter 5, after he did it and went to Pharaoh, things got worse. Pharaoh got angry. He made Israel work harder. Remember, it took away the straws to make brick. And in our passage today, Moses, he's had it. You know, he's done. Following God has done nothing but make his life harder. So we see him here in our passage today refusing to obey anymore. Now, what do we naturally do when we are in contact with somebody else who is disobedient, or what do we naturally do when we find ourselves disobedient to the Lord? Here's what naturally I want to do. I say, stop it. <laughs> you know, stop disobeying, start obeying, right? Simple, simple as that. And that's valid. Oftentimes in God's word, he does say that. But that's not God's only tool here. That's not his only way to encourage them towards obedience. We'll see in our passage today that God, like a skilled physician of the soul, 
dissects Moses' disobedience and the reason behind his disobedience, and he addresses that. Think about it. Why was Moses being disobedient in our passage? What could be the reason for his disobedience? He was discouraged, right? He thought God doesn't care. He thought, if God is with me, then surely life shouldn't be so hard. If God is for me, look, look at my circumstances. If God is for me, then surely life wouldn't be this hard. And he was discouraged. I mean, you can relate, right? I can. It's hard to remain obedient to a God that you think has left you. Why obey God that's left, that doesn't care? Now, this discouragement, okay, this conclusion that God isn't for him because he based that conclusion on his earthly circumstances was the source of Moses' disobedience and perhaps often is also the source of our disobedience, right? Um, that discouragement is why we don't want to obey God. And here, God assures Moses and the readers, us, that he will never leave his people, and that no matter how dire life gets, God will be with you. That's the point of the passage today, okay? How does God encourage Moses in his panic attack disobedience season? Okay, what does he do? Well, let's dive in. God shows us three things. God's immovable choice, God's transformative presence, and God's redemptive plan. God's immovable choice, God's transformative presence, and God's redemptive plan. Let's go to the first point. God's immovable choice. Okay, in point one, I'm going to cover the rest of chapter six. So I'm going to talk about chapter six, verse 10, all the way to verse 30, 20 verses, okay? Now that seems like a lot, but don't worry, because actually all 20 verses is just talking about one thing. Let me show you. Look at chapter six, verses 10 to 12. So the Lord said to Moses, go in, tell Pharaoh, king of Egypt, to let the people of Israel go out of his land. But Moses said to the Lord, behold, the people of Israel have not listened to me. How then shall Pharaoh listen to me? For I am of uncircumcised lips. So Moses here in this scene is discouraged, right? Life isn't going well. And he decides, I'm not going to obey God any longer. Because every time I obey, life just gets harder. And we actually see Moses here using the excuse that he already used in chapter 3 or 4. Remember that? When he said, choose someone else, you know, because I can't talk good. That's what Moses said, right? He's saying the same thing. I don't want to do this. I am of uncircumcised lips. Okay, that's the scene of chapter 6, verses 10 to 12. Now I want us to bring our eyes, skip all the way down to chapter 6, verses 28 to 30. Let's read it. On the day when the Lord spoke to Moses in the land of Egypt, the Lord said to Moses, I am the Lord, tell Pharaoh king of Egypt all that I say to you. But Moses said to the Lord, behold, I am of uncircumcised lips. How will Pharaoh listen to me? Is that strange? It is, right? Because verses 28 to 30 that we just read is the repetition of verses 10 to 12. What's going on here? Did Moses give the same excuse twice, back to back? No, what's happening is that both passages are actually still talking about the same scene. They're talking about the same scenario. The story actually hasn't moved on at all in 20 verses. If you imagine a movie screen, okay, it's still on the same shot. Verses 28 to 30 is portraying the same exact scene as verses 10 to 12. Okay? So the question is, What's verses 14 to 25 all about? Well, it's actually quite profound. In the midst of this scene of Moses' discouragement and disobedience, the narrator decides to add in this genealogy, right? A list of names and family descendants. 
Why? What's the purpose of that? Well, this genealogy is meant to encourage Moses and assure him that God is still there. How so? Okay, well, let's take a look at the closer details here. They, they matter. First on the genealogy, go to verse 14. It talks about Reuben and his sons, right? And then you go to verse 15, and it talks about Simeon and his sons. Okay, who are Reuben and Simeon? They're Jacob's oldest children. Okay, so if you read the book of Genesis, who is Jacob? Jacob is the one that God chooses to become the father of this nation that we, or that is called there, Israel. Okay, this is the genealogy of Israel. Abraham, Isaac, Jacob, right? He's one of the patriarchs, so to speak. So at this point of the story, where Moses is at his lowest point in life, where Moses is at the breaking point, he's about to leave God. He's about to be done with God. God brings the reader's attention back to Jacob. Why? Well, what about Jacob do you remember? Was he a good guy? No. He was an arrogant, self-serving, tricky thief who is shallow and values women primarily based on their physicality. That's who Jacob was. And God is saying... Remember the guy I chose to start all of this? Remember the guy I chose to be the patriarch for my people? He was a terrible guy. Now, how would this encourage someone who's in the bottom of the barrel and who's considering to be done with God? Well, it tells you, look, you can let go of God all you want. You can run away all you want. But there's nothing you can do to make God leave you. There is nothing in Jacob, this, this, the head honcho of this whole thing, there is nothing about Jacob that lured God to love him. God is making it absolutely clear here that he chose Jacob not because his decision was contingent or dependent on anything else, but simply because God wanted Jacob. Jacob didn't earn God's love. God freely gave it to him. How, how does this encourage someone who's almost done with God? Okay, well, we'll get there. Let me talk about the second thing first we see in this genealogy. Notice where Moses and Aaron was placed in the genealogy. In verse 20, in the middle of it. Okay, there's tons of people listed before, and there's tons of people listed after. Not only is God saying here in this genealogy that my commitment to my people is freely given by me. They did not impress me. Jacob did not impress me. I independently, graciously chose to love them. Not only is my original commitment to my people based solely on my own free will, God says, but that my commitment to my people is eternal. His love for Moses and Aaron happened way before Moses and Aaron existed. And it will continue long after their time on earth is done. I remember about two years ago, CCC had a staff day. And Gray led the devos. And he gave us like five different passages, right? Some in the Old Testament, some in the New Testament. And he told the staff, hey, go take 20 minutes, read these passages, and then come back and we'll describe and tell me what the similarity is that you find in all these passages. And of course, me being the other pastor, right? I was like, I'm about to come up with an answer so profound 
that I'm going to blow everybody else away. You know, I'm gonna, my answer is going to be so good. So I, you know, I, I studied it, and I looked at the passage, and I came back, and I forget what my answer was, but it was way off. It wasn't even close to what he had in mind. And after the discussion, at the end of it, he finally told us what he had in mind and the similarity of all these passages. And it was so simple. But it was so profound. He said, the one constant thing that we see in all these passages that range from the Old and New Testament is God. Everything else changed. The people who were alive in this passage were dead in this passage. The people who were alive in this passage was not yet born in this passage. Countries and institutions that existed in this passage was gone by this passage. There's different kingdoms and threats and disasters that was here but not here, and they all came and went, but one thing remained, and it is God. Steadfast forever. So what about God can we learn from this genealogy? And how would it encourage some of us today who, like Moses, may be in the pits and we're on the verge of being done with God. Well, one, it assures you that your relationship with God was never based on you impressing him. You were not the initiator. God was the initiator. Just like in Jacob, he, out of sheer mercy, independent of anything else, decided to initiate to him. And two, his love, to whomever he has graciously decided to freely initiate to, has existed long before they were born, and he will have that love for them long after their time on earth is done. Here's the message God is saying to you. If God has set his eyes on you to be his, you may at times be done with him but he will never be done with you. You may at times run away from him, but he will never loosen his embrace and leave you. Why not? Because you can't lose something you never earned. You can't lose something you never earned. If he wants Jacob, he will have Jacob. Despite of his disobedience, if he wants Moses, he will have Moses. Despite of him being hot and cold, if he wants you, he will have you. I mean, the readers at this point must have thought it's over, right? Pharaoh's too powerful. Moses is running away. Israel was blaming Moses and blaming God for their situation. Moses was blaming God. It's over. It's done. Why would God stick around? Their circumstances of their life is just too dire, and Moses himself was too disobedient. And it is precisely at this point, God lays out his genealogy, retells the story of Israel, and he says, no, no, it is far from done. <laughs> Don't you see? Since day one, since day one, since Jacob, I've endured through multiple counts of earthly turmoil, I've endured through multiple counts of sin. It is far from done. I have not left you. See, we, like Moses and the Israelites, we're, we're flimsy, right? We look at our earthly situations, you know, and it's bad, and we go, oh God, you must have left. Look at my life. You must, you must not, no longer be here. Here's God's answer in Exodus chapter 6, verse 14 to 25, okay? Here's what God says. 
Look at my track record. <laughs> what troubles you? Hmm? What makes you think I've left? Look at what I've stuck with my people through. What, what earthly trouble are you in? Are you in a famine? Because I stuck through my people with that. Are you facing a tyrannical pharaoh? Because I stuck through my people with that. Maybe your troubles involves a lion's den. I stuck with my people through that one too. How about a family feud that resulted in your siblings wanting to kill you? Are, is that your problem? I've been through some of that as well. Maybe you're facing a giant. Is that the trouble you're in? Is a corrupt leader causing you harm? Is a whole nation raiding your home? What is your trouble? What makes you think I've left? Look, look at this genealogy. I don't leave my people. Well, perhaps what makes us think God's left is not our earthly troubles, but our, our sinfulness, right? Well, if my earthly circumstances hasn't made him sick of me, then perhaps my sin has, right? Look at Moses. This is the seventh or eighth time he's disobeyed God in the span of four chapters. Surely God's sick of him. Surely that will make God leave, right? That's often what we think too. Let's take a look at this genealogy one more time. Friend, what is your sin? What'd you do? Did you do what Jacob did? Did you lie to your dad and steal your brother's life inheritance? I stuck with him through that. Maybe you sold your wife to slavery to save yourself. Abraham did that. Is that what you did? Because I stuck through him with that. Nothing happened to Sarah, but I stuck with him through that. Maybe you murdered somebody like Moses did. Is that your sin? Because I stuck with him through that. Did you, kill, did, did you kill a woman's husband and then use your, your power to manipulate her to, to sleep with you? Like my servant David did. Is that what you did? Is that your sin? I stuck with him through that. Are you worshiping false gods? I stuck with my people through that. What'd you do? What'd you do? Take a look at this genealogy. Take a look at this track record and tell me the sin you've done that I haven't seen before. What'd you do? I stuck with them through that. So Moses or whoever in here that can relate with him, if the direness of your life situation or disobedience of your heart has made you think that God has loosened his grip on you, think again. He does not leave his people. Take a look at this genealogy. Take a look at his track record. You can't lose something you never earned. He'll always be with you. How? Through a mediator, which is the last thing about this genealogy that I want to point out. Look at verse 16. The genealogy all of a sudden narrows in on Levi's descendants. Okay? Levi was Jacob's third son. And the, the Levite tribe, right, his, his children, became the priests of Israel. The priests are the mediators, the go-between between God and his people. Okay? There's, there's a person in between that represents the people to God and represents God to his people. God is saying to his people at this dire time of their life that he'll be with them. He'll never leave them. How? By appointing a mediator to be with them. Who is this mediator? Well, skip down to verse 20. 
do you see two familiar names mentioned there as descendants of the Levite tribe? Aaron and Moses. The proof that my presence is still here with you is that Aaron and Moses are still here. So no matter how cruddy life gets, and no matter how much you want to run from me, if Aaron and Moses are here, I'm here with you. This is much, so much better than God just giving you a formula to fix your current problem you have now. Right? It's so much better. Um, God doesn't just solve their Egypt problem. God is saying, no, no, I'm going to give you myself through Aaron and Moses so that all the troubles you go through, you know I'm with you. What did, what did Aaron and Moses help the Israelites uh, by God's grace survive? Egypt, getting out of that, yes. The Red Sea, crossing that, yes. A few famines and um, threats of dying from thirst in the desert, through that. Uh, the Amaleks try to attack them. Right? Exodus chapter 17. Moses, God used Moses and Aaron to get them through that. See, people come to church looking for solutions for their problems. God's going to give you something better. He's going to give you himself if he loves you. And he's going to say, I'm not just going to solve this one trouble. I'll give you myself to bring you all the way back home. Securely. No matter how dire your life situation might be. This is unbelievably good news. As long as God's mediator is with someone, God's presence will never leave them. And they'll be delivered safely to the promised land despite of how terrible my flight be. That is the greatest encouragement someone like Moses and Israel needs to hear right now. I am with you. And it's quite a bizarre promise the Bible is making, right? It's pretty bizarre. If it's true, if it's true, that means that the million dollar question to life or the gajillion rupiah question to life is not how can I get out of this situation it's not how can I escape this trouble that's not your biggest question you know what the most important question to life is if this is true it's this how can my name be part of this genealogy that's the greatest question of life which brings us to our second point his transformative presence, his transformative work. Okay, a lot of people think, I will be included, I'm included as in God's people, I'm one of his, his presence is with me and for me, if I can tell whether or not I'm one of his based on my life circumstances. If life is bad, then God's presence is not for me. If life is good, then God's presence is for me. That's how we usually look at life. Well, this is how uh, our passage today shows us that's simply not true. Look at Pharaoh's life. He's rich. He's powerful. He has a soaring career. He's living in a castle in a buzzing metropolitan urban city. He owns crazy real estate. And if the gram existed back then, I'm sure he'll have a blue check mark next to his name. Life was good for Pharaoh. Everything was fine. Now look at Moses' life. Everybody hates him. He barely has a career. He lives in a small house in the middle of nowhere. Let's not even talk about his bank account. But yet, whose name was included in this genealogy? Whose presence was God for? Moses, not Pharaoh. This is biblical proof that how well and prosperous your life may be is not necessarily an indication that God is with you or for you. 
just because you're rich, just because your career is doing well, that does not mean God is for you. Don't be fooled. I'm not saying if you live in a huge house in an urban city and you got a lot of money and you're an influencer on the gram, you know, if you're that, then God isn't for you. That's not what I'm saying, of course. The Bible isn't saying that. It's simply warning you, do not be fooled to think just because life is on the up and up, that automatically means that God is for you. It doesn't. And don't be discouraged. Just because life seems hard right now, it doesn't mean that he is not for you and that he's not with you. Okay, well, if current life circumstances is not a good indicator of my inclusion in this genealogy, if, if my current life circumstances is not a good indicator of God's presence being with me or for me, what is a good indicator? Well, let's continue in our passage. After God affirms Moses that he's with him, Okay, my presence is with you, my presence is for you. Okay, verse seven, uh, chapter seven, verse one to two, the Lord said to Moses, see, I've made you like God to Pharaoh and your brother Aaron shall be your prophet. You shall speak all that I command you and your brother Aaron shall tell Pharaoh to let the people of Israel go out of his land. Take, take a look again at verse one. There's a funny, weird part that says, I have made you like God to Pharaoh. Now, that doesn't mean that Moses somehow morphed into a demigod or morphed into some kind of superhuman to Pharaoh. No. What does that mean? Well, let me tell you. Think back to Genesis, okay? What were humans originally made to be like? We are made in God's image. We are meant to be God's image bearers. That is our original design. This is what Exodus chapter 7 verse 1 is referring to when God says to Moses that uh, when God's presence came to Moses and said, you will be God to Pharaoh, he's not saying that God's presence is going to make Moses superhuman. This is saying that God's presence will make Moses truly human as he was originally meant to be as bearers, as a bearer of God's image. To be, when, when you love, Right? When you weep at injustice, when you long for whatever is good, true, and beautiful, you are being godlike. You're displaying godlike qualities. You're being who you're meant to be. So when God says, I'll make you like God to Pharaoh, and you will do and speak all that I command you to Pharaoh, God is saying to Moses that my presence will make you, Moses, as you were originally meant to be. You're going to be speaking my word. You're going to be doing my will. You're going to be representing me as humans are originally meant to do to Pharaoh. You're going to be truly human. But notice, here's what's interesting. God's presence had the exact opposite on Pharaoh. What will God's presence do to Pharaoh? When Moses, who is God's representative, right, approaches Pharaoh, right, God's presence through Moses approaches Pharaoh, what will it do to Pharaoh? Look at verse 3. It will harden his heart. And the Lord said to Moses, See, I have made you like God to Pharaoh, and your brother Aaron shall be your prophet. You shall speak all that I command you, and your brother Aaron shall tell Pharaoh to let the people of Israel go out of his land. But I will harden Pharaoh's heart. And though I multiply my signs and wonders in the land of Egypt, Pharaoh will not listen to you. Okay, I'm not going to take today's sermon to talk too much about who's responsible for the hardening of Pharaoh's heart. 
Is it God? Is it Pharaoh? How does it all work? I'm not going to talk about that too much now, not because I'm trying to avoid it, but two reasons why. One, we, as we continue through the plagues, we're going to encounter this theme 17 more times of Pharaoh's heart being hardened. And those times, they'll actually be talking more about the details of responsibility and, and different things like that. We can talk about that more then. But the second reason why I'm not going to spend too much time on that is because the focus of today's passage is not who's responsible for the hardening of Pharaoh's heart. It's rather the contrast of how God's presence affected Moses and Pharaoh differently. That's the focus of today's passage. That's what I'm going to talk about and spend our time on today. Notice God's presence in chapter 7 verse 1 made Moses more human and godlike in his character. But contrast, God's presence made Pharaoh's heart what? Hard. What does that mean? That Pharaoh's heart became hard. See, unlike our postmodern understanding of the heart, the heart in the Bible is not just feelings. It's not just your emotions. The heart of the Bible in the Bible is so much more than that. Let me just read you a few verses. Here's Genesis chapter 6 verse 5, okay? The Lord saw that the wickedness of man was great in the earth and that every intention of the thoughts of his heart was only evil continually. See, the heart thinks. That's interesting. It affects your cognition, right? Your brain. 1 Samuel 1.8, and Elkanah, her husband, said to her, Hannah, why do you weep? And why do you not eat? And why is your heart sad? So not only does the heart affect your cognition, but your heart also affects your emotions. It affects sadness. Proverbs 16.9, the heart of man plans his ways, but the Lord establishes his steps. The heart can make plans. <laughs> Okay, so it affects your thoughts, it affects your emotions, it affects your plans and actions, and it affects much more. Proverbs 3, 5, the heart trusts, right? Determines who and what is trustworthy or not. Matthew 12, out of the heart comes words. The heart speaks. G.K. Beale, a professor of New Testament and biblical theology, in one of his articles counted that in the Old Testament, the heart is described to affect our thinking 204 times, the heart is described to be affecting our emotions 166 times, and the heart it affects our actions in the Old Testament 195 times. The heart isn't just what you feel. It's more basic and fundamental than that. It's the rudder of the ship, you see. It's the engine of the train. It's the wheels of the car. It's the king of the country. It determines, a theologian calls it, the seat of destiny. The heart is a seat of destiny. Whatever the heart has set itself upon, you're going to plan to do it, you're going to love doing it, and you're going to intellectually find a way to justify why doing it is right. That's the heart. See, Pharaoh, when confronted with God's presence through Moses, Pharaoh's heart, the core of who he is, the engine of his very being, the core became hard. You know, heat and pressure does two different things to gold and limestone. When you apply heat and pressure to gold, it purifies it. It brings out all its dross and it destroys it and it turns it back to how it originally was meant to be, pure gold. 
But you know what heat and pressure does to a limestone? It turns it into marble, a much harder rock. Heat and pressure makes limestone turn into an element more rigid, hard, and invulnerable. God's presence did to Moses what heat and pressure does to gold, but it did to Pharaoh what heat and pressure does to limestone. You see, what's this passage saying? Well, it just gave us the answer to that gajillion rupiah question we mentioned earlier. You want to know whether or not God is with you? You want to know whether or not his presence is for you? Your bank account is not a good indicator of that. How good your career is doing is not a good indicator of that. How well your marriage is doing is not a good indicator of that. How easy life is is not a good indicator of that. How well your kids are doing is not a good indicator of that. What is the indicator for you to know that God's presence is with you and for you? You can know whether or not he's with you by looking at how your heart responds when God approaches you with his presence through telling you his redemption plan. That's what Moses did to Pharaoh. He approached God's presence, approached Pharaoh in Moses. God's words were spoken to Pharaoh. I will free my people Israel. Pharaoh's heart hardened. You can know whether or not God's presence is with and for you by how your heart reacts and responds when you hear about God's redemption plan. Okay. But what is God's redemption plan? Moses and Aaron aren't here, right? They're not speaking to me God's redemption plan. I'm not an Israelite that's an Egyptian slave. So what is this redemption plan? And how can I know how my heart will react when I hear it? Well, let's find out, shall we? Let's go to our last point, his redemption plan. Let's move on to our passage, chapter 7, verses 4 to 5. Pharaoh will not listen to you. God says, then I will lay my hand on Egypt and bring my hosts, my people, the children of Israel, out of the land of Egypt by great acts of judgment. The Egyptians shall know that I am the Lord when I stretch out my hand against Egypt and bring out the people of Israel from among them. Okay? That's the redemption plan. Okay? So what is God's redemption plan? Well, we see it includes a great act of judgment. That's what the passage says. Referring to the plagues. Right? The great act of judgment. So, Here's what's going on. To one group of people, Pharaoh and the Egyptians, this great act of judgment will harden their hearts and be their destruction. For another group of people, Moses and Israel, for them, this same great act of judgment will be their source of joy and salvation. Okay? Can you think about what this might could be referring to? Let, let's try and think back to our Bible knowledge of the New Testament what great act of judgment did God do in the New Testament, which then became the source of joy and salvation for his people? What great act of judgment comes to mind? You know, you read this genealogy and you see God promising to be with his people through a mediator, through Aaron and Moses, okay? But how can Moses be the mediator when he's busy disobeying God? Okay, so maybe it's not Moses, then it's Aaron, 
right? Aaron is kind of the focus here in this genealogy anyways. So Moses needs Aaron. Aaron is the, is the mediator. No. Go to Exodus chapter 32. What did Aaron do? He led God's people to worship a false god, Baal. The mediator isn't Aaron either. So if God's promise is always to be with us through a mediator, but yet it isn't Moses or Aaron, then who is it? Friends, Aaron and Moses were only meant to point to this person. God has provided you with a mediator. What did Jesus do on the cross for you? Hmm? Unlike Moses and Aaron, he didn't only administer God's judgment upon Egypt to free you. He took upon himself God's judgment so that you may be saved. That's the great act of judgment, the cross, that frees you. You know, how can God remain present with his people through all they've done? Jacob, the lying thief. Abraham sold his wife in order to save himself. Moses, the murderer and disobedient coward. David, the abusive womanizer. You, me, fill in the blank. How can God remain patient with us? Why doesn't God deliver a great act of judgment upon them all, upon us all? Where did that judgment go? It went to Jesus, his own son, when he died for you on that cross. How can God be with you after all you've done? How can God be with me after all I've done? He can be with us because he's provided us with the greatest mediator, himself who took all of our judgments upon himself on that cross. See, we come to church looking for answers to our earthly problems. If God loves you, he's going to show you that he plunged himself to your greatest problem and that is sin before a holy God. And through that, you will be delivered safely to his everlasting arms, home. That's his redemption plan. So, moment of truth. You've, let's bring it back, okay? We've got Israel, Egypt. Let's bring it back to 2019, Jakarta, Lothe Shopping Avenue, fifth floor, you know, eighth row, whatever. You've just been exposed to God's redemptive plan. God has just confronted you with his presence by speaking to you his redemption plan through the preaching of his word. What's your heart doing right now? What's going on? Is it softening up as you hear about just how much he loves you and how unbelievably stubborn he is about his commitment to you? Is it softening up? Or do you find it turning more and more into marble? Is it hardening up? finding itself to be allergic and resistant to this good news, if it's softening up, if you are rejoicing over the fact that you're free because God has taken upon himself the judgment that you deserve, then rejoice. I don't care how bad your life is. He is with you. He does not leave his people. If your heart is lured to want to be more like Christ and represent him and speak his word because you've heard this great redemption plan, rejoice. He'll never let you go. You are in the genealogy. Let me read it, Galatians 3, verses 13 to 14. 
Christ redeemed us from the curse of the law by becoming a curse for us. For it is written, Cursed is everyone who is hanged on a tree. So that in Christ Jesus, the blessings of who? Abraham might come to the Gentiles. If you've received Christ as Lord and Savior, your name is in there. No earthly problem can take you away from him. Not even your own rebellion is strong enough to beat his love for you. You're his. His grace that has set you free is the same grace that will deliver you home all the way. So be encouraged. Continue obeying him. You're not too far. Come back. He never left. Obey. Live your life again for his glory. Speak his word. Do his will. Represent his image. Live for his glory. But if you find your heart after hearing this message of deliverance becoming a bit defensive, if you find your heart hardening up a little bit like a piece of limestone on heat, then I beg you, as the author of Hebrews said, today, if you hear his voice, do not harden your heart. Because friend, there is no other way. He is the only way, truth, and the life. No one gets the Father but through him. Do not approach God's holy throne based on your own righteousness. You will perish. Behold what your God has done for you on that cross. Do not harden your heart. Beg him that he would soften it. There is no other way. Let's pray. Father, what an unbelievable story of redemption that you would take for yourself a people undeserving, sinners rebelling against you, flimsy in our commitment to you. Yet you have plucked us out of darkness and grabbed us for yourself, not because you were lured in by our morality, but because by mercy and independent grace, surely on your own free choice, you condescended and pursued us who would never have wanted you if left to our own natures. We praise you and we glorify you for this great redemption. Encourage us, remind us, if we have received this and if we are yours, no matter how low life gets, or no matter how much we find our hearts wanting to run from you, you will have us for yourself and deliver us safely home through your mediator, yourself, Jesus Christ, who took on the great act of judgment on that cross that we deserve. To him and him alone be all glory, honor, and praise. In Jesus' name we pray. Amen.